You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and I've got a special emergency podcast that I'm publishing today. It is with Manoj Dalmia. He is a New York physician, doctor on the um, on on the front lines of this coronavirus response. Um, he had made some posts on Facebook. And uh, I wanted to have him on the program to answer some frequently asked questions that I've been hearing about and to clarify some of the disinformation that's been running around out there. And so I'm going to keep this intro very short and sweet so we can get into the call. There's a lot of really great information on this, and I really appreciate Manoj taking the time to share his wisdom with us. With that, let's get into it. Here I am with Manoj Dalmia. All right. I am here with Manoj Dalmia. Manoj, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the call this afternoon. I know you've got a lot going on in your world, so I appreciate you carving out a few moments to answer some questions about this whole crazy coronavirus shenanigans that we're all uh, suddenly having to get up to speed on. So again, first first foremost, thank you. Definitely happy to be here, Peter. Thanks, man. Um, so, uh, Manoj, for those uh, who don't know you, and that's going to be a handful of people, what um, tell us a little bit about just your your credentials and your background, so people understand that you're not just another guy off the street, but you for have sure, a. For sure. So <laughs> I'm. Um, so right now, my my current job is I'm a clinical assistant professor at NYU Langone um, in New York City. Um, I'm also a fellowship trained pediatric anesthesiologist. Okay, and so. Um, by many accounts, you are on the front lines here of responding to the coronavirus in New York. How are things going right now in your world? What are you seeing? Um, give us a little bit of a, a update from from the in the trenches where you're at. Well, I'll say right, I'll say this right now. So right now, things haven't gotten to the point of where our resources are overwhelmed, uh, but there is definitively a fear that that is going to be coming sooner rather than later. Um, there's obviously massive shortages in terms of general resources, masks, protective gear, um, all the things that we need uh, to be able to protect ourselves as well as other patients. Uh, so that's a little bit frustrating. Um, you know, we're at the we're at the point of where we're conserving to the point of where we're reusing masks um, and sterilizing what we have, uh, just so that we uh, don't run out of our resources sooner rather than later. Right. Um, Currently, like every hospital, pretty much every hospital in New York has COVID-19 positive patients. Um, I can speak on NYU uh, that we definitely do have COVID positive patients. They're currently being treated within our medical ICU setting. Um, But the other ICUs are getting prepped for it. Um, And we'll see kind of what happens on that front. But, uh, But every day there's more people that we suspect have coronavirus um, and are having significant symptoms that uh, could lead to admission. Okay. Um, all right. So for those that are still getting up to speed with this whole thing, we, we, let's start with what we know at, uh, on a basic level. Um, this is a coronavirus is a family of viruses. Um, most of which we've already experienced, correct? I mean, this has been something that we just haven't experienced this this threat of it, or or um, is this a, a whole new thing? This so this falls within the family of coronaviruses, but this virus itself is a novel virus. Okay, it's never been it's never been seen before, and 
part of part of the concern is that anytime you have a new a new virus and your body is getting exposed to it, um, you've never developed any prior immunity to this particular version of this of the virus. Gotcha. And so all of us, our bodies for the first time are experiencing this, and therefore that's why we may be having a little bit more severe symptoms, just kind of right off the bat, or, or that could be just a part of this virus itself. Coronaviruses are, are a big family. So when we talk about the, the common cold, the common cold is caused by a coronavirus. When we talk about like SARS and how scared we were when SARS happened, that's also another type of coronavirus. So they all fall within this, this family. What, just out of curiosity, what makes a family of viruses a family? Is it the, the structure of the virus or is it the something else? So, I mean, there, so, so typically I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a, a big time scientist when it comes to this, but specifically with the coronavirus, um, the coronavirus, if you look at it at a molecular level, um, it looks like a round ball with various projections coming out of it. So it actually looks like a sun. And that's why it, this family of viruses is nicknamed the corona, or this is called a coronavirus. Okay. Um, gotcha. All right. Well, I, I, uh, asked my audience, my community to submit some questions um, so that we could get some answers. There's, there's so much disinformation out there. And I think that's part of what we're all battling is, is making sure that we're getting accurate information is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on in the first place to have somebody that with some medical knowledge, obviously, and somebody who's on, uh, on the ground level there in New York to give us some feedback. So I have a handful of questions and I'm just going to start to rifle through some of these um, if somebody does become infected, what treatments are available at the hospital and what, what are they actually providing for you to treat you? So really not. So if you're coming in and you have only mild symptoms, you're not having, um, any like severe respiratory difficulties, not a whole lot. Um, right now, you know, testing is still pretty limited. Um, but what I would say is whether or not you were determined that you were COVID-19 positive or not, the, uh, the doctors would pretty much say the exact same thing. You need to go home, you need to isolate, um, and rest. There's really nothing much more that can be done because with most viruses, there aren't treatments. You just kind of have to let it run its course. So does it make sense then if, if somebody is feeling symptoms, does it, is there, and it's not, you know, feeling life-threatening or anything like that, does it make sense to even go in and get tested? Yeah, I, I personally, I don't think so. Yeah. Because ultimately, whether or not you're, po whether you're positive or you're not positive, the, the, the answer is going to be the same. You need to quarantine, self-quarantine, right. keep your distance for, for two weeks, um, and let, let the virus run its course. And then, obviously, if you get more severe symptoms, if you start getting shortness of breath, um, those like a severe cough, shortness of breath, where you feel really that things are getting bad, 100% you should go to the ER, but to everybody else, stay at home. Because right now, the ERs are getting inundated with a bunch of people that are looking for this test to determine whether or not they're positive, when ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, yeah. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. That's what I was, I've been talking just with other colleagues and family members. It's like, okay, you have it. Great. But now what, if there's no real treatment for it and, or if 
the majority of the symptoms are just flu-like-ish that you can more or less weather at home. What's the point of even going? And frankly, what if you don't have it and you just have a mild cold or whatever, and then you go in and you expose yourself potentially to actually getting it? Well, it goes both ways. You expose yourself and you potentially expose others if you are positive. So, right. Okay. That's, that's clear. So, so the takeaway is unless you're dealing with something that you feel is significantly affecting your ability to, you know, to breathe um, or that you feel that is an emergency, you more or less can just stay home. Um, that makes a lot of sense in my mind. Um, next question, are children being hospitalized and or admitted into the ICU right now? Because there hasn't been a lot, uh, hasn't been a lot of reported deaths, but I'm wondering, this is the, this person's question, but I'm wondering if there is a bigger impact to kids than what we're being told. Uh, from, from our experience, uh, not really. We don't have any PICU patients. We don't have any pediatric ICU patients um, that have been admitted because of COVID. Um, they actually seem to be pretty darn resistant to the virus. And a lot of it might have to do with uh, the fact, first of all, like I said, there's the common cold, our coronaviruses. So, you know, our immune systems have kind of seen versions of it. Um, and another theory is that with kids, because their immune systems are still developing, that they, uh, they may not have as robust of an immune response as, say, the rest of the population. Um, that's another theory, nothing confirmed. Sure. But, but ultimately, it's because they're also generally amongst the healthiest of the population. Uh-huh. They aren't like when we're talking about risk factors, we're talking about you know, the elderly, which is 60, 60 and above, when you look at the disaster of what's going on in Italy, about 98% of all their deaths occur in people 60 years and above. Wow. And you look at smokers, uh, people with chronic, chronic illness, whether that's high blood pressure, heart disease, um, they have bad respiratory issues, lung disease, diabetes, the obese, are just amongst a number of the risk factors that are associated with more severe presentation of the disease. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that with young people, that generally speaking, that's not an issue. Gotcha. Um, as a single parent, uh, if you feel that you've contracted it and you've exposed your children to it, again, is that something where, um, I- I'm just thinking through logistically on a practical level. Sure. Um, let's say a parent gets it and they're in bed, they've got flu-like symptoms, um, they've got younger kids at home. Do you send your kids to someone else? Do you bring somebody else in? Do you have any practical advice on that? Um, are we talking about like dual parent households, single parent households? Single parent. Okay. So what I would say with single parent households is you spend a lot of time, like people who are single parents spend a lot of time with their kids. Mm-hmm. So whether or not your kids are symptomatic, if you've been spending a lot of time with them and, you know, like most parents are tend to be affectionate, they share with their children, your kids probably have it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, but like I said, they don't tend to have severe disease. Mm -hmm. They seem to be pretty darn protected against it. Okay. So one of those things, what I would say is that a lot of these kids are asymptomatic, but you need to kind of keep them away from others because, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of thought that asymptomatic spread is a much bigger deal than what 
we we've thought. Can you define what that means? So so generally speaking, you know, when patients are symptomatic, and if they're coughing, there's they're, if they're coughing, they can release lots of virus in like in air droplets, etc., um, that other people can 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 counteract. But even patients who don't share who have symptoms can still shed virus. They're going to shed virus in lower quantities than somebody who's actively symptomatic, but they can still pass on that disease to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that person could then become symptomatic from it. So that, that is currently in it, uh, probably a bigger issue than we realize. Yeah. I, that to me is one of the biggest takeaways because I think so many people think, Oh, I'm not elderly. I'm in pretty good shape. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to go about my day. And we don't, we don't really take into account that we're all carriers of this thing, even healthy individuals, and that we potentially could be spreading it to others who then spread it to others who eventually pass it on to people who uh, are vulnerable to it. Um, it really is kind of saving lives by staying put, reducing social interaction, even if you are younger, healthy, and not really prone to getting this disease. Right. But this is a, this is right now a huge issue, right? Because right now there are throngs of people of young people like in Clearwater beach in Florida that are packing beaches right. and you know, and mayor de Blasio um, in New York, um, you know, may, mandated that all restaurants and bars close as of today um, at 9 AM. Uh, because they want to prevent spread because as of this weekend, um, the, a lot of the bars were still pretty packed full of people. Yeah, that's wild. And when you're talking about New York and Washington essentially going back and forth as the two primary hubs of the COVID spread, um, it's pretty disheartening. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lessons that we can be learning out of Italy. And, and I mean, I've been reading reports from people saying, hey, we didn't take this seriously and we're paying the price please take this seriously. Um, and one of the most important messages that I, they continue to be putting out is reduce social interaction. So, you had mentioned flattening the curve on your recent Facebook post. And I'd love for those who don't understand or haven't heard that term just yet. Can you please explain what that is? Because that really is, I think, life-saving information. Right. So, so essentially what flattening the curve means is that you don't overwhelm uh, the hospital systems with a huge number of new cases all at once. So the way that, so if you don't practice social distancing, which is defined as keeping about six feet away, five to six feet away from another person, because when you cough, they estimate that the distance the virus can travel is about six feet. So hence the idea of social distancing um, and practicing proper hygiene. Um, washing your hands, um, pretty consistently sanitizing. And um, so what that does is that when you do that, you have less affected patients in any, in any given amount of time. Um, so if, so if, if you practice it, it's not that it, that it states that you're not going to keep, you're not going to get new cases, but the number of cases that are hitting the hospital, hospital system at once isn't a huge number. Mm -hmm. So that you're not, you're not overwhelming the resources of the hospital at any given moment in time. They always have enough resources to deal with the influx of patients that they have. But if you don't practice social distancing, 
if you don't practice good hygiene, then what ends up happening is you get a huge number of people all at once that get sick. They all come to the hospital and now the hospital doesn't have enough resources to deal with everybody who is sick. And unfortunately that's what's happening in Italy. In Italy, they are massively triaging and they essentially are saying we don't have enough ventilators. And so they are picking and choosing who is living and dying because they don't have a choice. Yeah. That's, that's a tragedy beyond proportions right now that hopefully we're not going to have to deal with. Hopefully we've been proactive enough to mitigate this thing to the point where the curve has been flattened enough um, so that you guys can do your job and uh, people are not having to die because they don't have what they need. Um, I'll be honest, Peter, though, I, there's a lot of worry that we are not doing enough. Mm, um, I mean, this is something that will, if I understand the timeline correctly, from the moment one gets infected to uh, a point of, hey, I need some help, it's a one to two week period. Is that correct? The the incubation period for this virus is anywhere from two to 14 days. Um, average time about five days. Um, it could obviously two to 14 is a general range. You're probably going to have outliers. Um but five, five days tends to be the average incubation period. Uh, most common symptoms um, kind of mimic the flu, like I said, um, but they can be a little bit more severe. It's generally cough, a dry cough, dry persistent cough with fever. Um, and we define fever as 100.4 and above. Hmm. Um, a lot of these patients also end up getting lethargic. They have muscle aches. Um, but the, but the, the coughing, shortness of breath, fever, those tend to be um, kind of signs that potentially you could have it. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where if you have severe shortness of breath, then that's something where you, that's when the hospitals are serious, are going to generally get overwhelmed at that point. Mm -hmm. How concerned are you personally that that's, that might be the reality? Um, I'll be honest with you. I was pretty skeptical. <laughs> Um, as a probably a week, week and a half ago. And, uh, and now you just see the numbers and the fact that it's becoming more and more real on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I'm definitely concerned. I think that, you know, I think that the U.S.'s response has been pretty slow. Mm. It's pretty disappointing overall. Mm. Um, but hopefully... Uh, you know, all we can do is just where we're at is prepare the best that we can prepare um, and see and see what goes on. I mean, one thing I'll say about New York, there's a lot of older people that live in New York, but there's also a lot of really young people. And so what I'm hoping is that because our demographic is very different than, say, Italy, um, that has a large percentage of people that are elderly. Um, and I'm hoping it doesn't get to that point because the demographic spread is is different here right when you say that the that it's that you're starting that you're more concerned is that people coming in saying hey i want to get tested or people coming in saying i'm having shortness of breath i need uh i need immediate help well you know so i'm not seeing so the the emergency physicians are the ones that are on the front line of seeing those initial covid patients um but for us, you know, because we're taking care of patients in the operating room, 
Um, a number of these patients are in the ICU. Uh, we have ICU colleagues. Anesthesia um, invented the field of critical care. And so um, I have a number of anesthesia colleagues that are also critical care physicians um, who've been pretty much keeping our entire department updated um, and have been kind of on the forefront of developing methods to keep us as safe as possible mm -hmm. should we need to do any kind of surgeries or procedures um, on COVID positive patients. Mm. Um, this is a good question. What is the most effective way during the incubation period to determine if you have contact, uh, contracted the virus? So I've heard, I've read reports where you can hold your breath for 10 seconds to see if you can, no, you're shaking your head. No, what, is that a falsity or what's the. It's all, fallacy. it's all fallacy, man. Okay. I mean, there, the, a lot, this is, this is exactly the idea of like this misinformation that's being spread all over social media. Um, I've read, I saw something recently that said that I tried to scientifically state why being in a sauna um, can protect you against the coronavirus. Um, it's all nonsense. <laughs> right. So sitting on the beach with your feet up and dripping, uh, drinking a pina colada is not, uh, not going to help. I mean, I've, that's the report I read. I, sh I, was gonna I read, yeah. I, um, <laughs> one of my buddies sent me a thing that said that, uh, that alcohol, yeah, that alcohol reduces your risk of contracting coronavirus and specifically tequila. And that's not real. Oh, not the, oh, I thought you were going to say Corona, a bottle of Corona, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can, I can take a wild guess who that, who that friend might be. <laughs> you will hundred percent know who it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Any excuse to have a drink of tequila. Um, okay. so, uh, so is there any home, um, self tests that you can do or just, are we just looking for symptoms at this point? It's all symptom. It's all okay. symptom based. And like I, like I said, and I've told a number of my friends who've experienced mild symptoms remember we're still in cold and flu season so the thing is, is that the cold and flu are still very real and people are still contracting them so but amongst the covid fear anyone who might be having just a bad cold or the flu is worried that they have covid but what i would say is the care is the exact same lots of fluids make sure you're eating right you know lots of vitamin C, zinc, whatever you, whatever you need in terms of feeling better and sleep. Fluid and sleep are probably the two most important things. A lot of people don't realize how dehydrated they get when they're ill, especially with an elevated fever, um, that you really need to make sure that you keep hydrated. Um, and that's really going to be the thing that's going to, that's going to help you the most. And, you know, if you need to, if you have a fever and you feel crummy, take some Tylenol. Um, there's, there's reports that maybe we should avoid any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like ibuprofen, um, naproxen, Aleve, um, that it might actually be detrimental to us, to our immune system to, to, to do that. But then you also have patients that, you know, in the most severe end, end up presenting, uh, you know, it's just, it's just questionable about what it is. So the, 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 general, the general stance is if you have a fever um, and you have body aches, take Tylenol and maybe avoid NSAIDs. Mm. I read a report from a young woman who her physical condition was such that she had dealt with a lot of viruses. Um, she was maybe more susceptible to them or something like that. Mm -hmm. And her advice, which was really beautiful, was 
to allow your that pain in your body in those in you know in terms of like a fever or things like that is actually your body working it's actually your body doing what it can to create a hostile environment for the virus and kill it off and uh, allowing your body to do what it does so we often think of fever and things of those things as as the enemy when really it's if we sort of embrace it it's it's our body doing what it needs to do to to fight back against this hostile you know, invader, basically. You're, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, our bodies are doing it because our body thinks this is the best way um, to fight what we have. And you're absolutely right about creating a hostile environment um, in, which, uh, in which it makes it difficult for viruses or bacteria to live. However, the thing is, is that the most extreme reactions to that immune response can lead to why people are getting admitted into the ICUs. Mm. So, so it's, it's, it's a delicate balance. Um, and not feeling great is also not a great thing, (laughs) you know? And so, um, you're absolutely right. It is your body fighting against it, but at the same time, some of these responses can also be maladaptive. Sure. So it's a matter of finding that balance. Yep. Um, next question. If you're required to be in, in public, what are some of the important measures to take in order to prevent contracting the virus? Um, like I said, practice social distancing. Keep keep yourself about six feet away from others. Um, practice good hygiene. Really basic stuff. If you're in a big open air environment, wearing a mask doesn't help. Um, if you're actively sick, that person should be wearing a mask. Mm. Um, they should avoid any crowded. You should avoid crowded crowded spaces. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that, you'll 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 dramatically decrease the number of exposures. Mm. Um, how accurate? You, you, I don't know if you can answer this, but how accurate are the numbers we've been seeing regarding the total cases versus deaths? So, th- I mean, I think it's accurate in terms of confirmed cases, but that's 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 the that's the big thing, right? It's confirmed. Yeah. There's, there's COVID positive patients. So what I would say is, is that my personal feeling is that the death rate is much lower because there's a lot of people, like I said, who may have very mild symptoms. They may be COVID positive, but the focus shouldn't be on testing whether or not they're positive or not because they're mild and it's a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine that there's probably a number of people that are very, have very, very mild disease that denominator of total cases should be going up versus deaths. So when that happens, the the percentage of deaths should become lower. Mm -hmm. The the cases that we're seeing are the ones that are so sick, they're the ones that are coming to the hospital. But in the general population, I guarantee it's much, much, much higher. Mm -hmm. So I would say that for me, I actually take solace in that. Yeah. yeah, this is not a joke. This is definitively more severe than the flu. But I don't also want people to think that doomsday is coming. Right. 
Right. I mean, there's just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, some people are saying that this is potentially a, a dress rehearsal for something down the road and that this is, you know, potentially a really good wake up call for us to take these things seriously, to take measures uh, to prepare on an individual basis. But what are we doing on a systemic level, uh, governmental level to prepare for something like this, especially in a country as big as as America is? Um, there, like you said, you know, it's probably it hope, you know, it might be too little too late for some of this stuff. We probably could have taken preventative measures a week, two, or maybe a month before once we heard things were breaking out across the other side of the globe. So, you know, God forbid this, it is an issue, but hopefully a very small and minor one, but enough of a one to maybe give us a wake up call. And, and so that we can think about how do we do that? You know, how do we take care of this in the future? I think, uh, I, I think you're a hundred percent right, but I do, I, I do think that overall our initial response was very poor. Yeah. And, um, and I'm hoping, hmm? sorry, finish that thought. And I have a question. No. So, you know, so I'm hoping that, you know, uh, that things don't get bad, but you know, right now, when you look at the number of cases in the U S versus Italy, um, we mimic the numbers pretty, pretty Mm. similarly Mm. Um, on a day-to-day basis. The number of confirmed cases matches eerily to Italy. Italy is still, so what's happening is we need to somehow break that, that momentum because it's this hyperbolic increase. So a few cases becomes a lot more cases, which becomes a whole lot more cases. Um, And that's the trajectory that things look at this moment. Mm. That's a little, yeah, that's concerning. What should we have done differently in your mind? I mean, just, just the full response by the government in terms of, you know, accepting outside help, having, having these kits available, um, enacting strict measures in terms of limiting exposure to in big group, big group settings, um, would have been a huge thing. Uh, the way that we've kind of filled with what's happening with like people that have been traveling, you know, people waiting for hours and hours and hours in line trying to get through immigration customs. When now you're talking about people that are coming from countries where there's been a lot of infected and now you're, piling them into small rooms by the hundreds mm-hmm. and then having them come out into the community and the depending that every single one of them is going to self quarantine. Um, those are just a few, a few examples. I mean, yeah. even you know, I'll say that even, you know, a lot of physicians have expressed frustration at, in their own institutions by what they feel has been a, um, a lackluster response in terms of really minimizing um, unnecessary cases. I mean, conserving resources for when this wave potentially could hit. Right. Hmm. Um, How long after you get well, can you still spread it? Well, I think, I think what the idea is, is that once you're, once you're symptomatic uh, that if you, if you quarantine for about a full two weeks, uh, you should 
the risk of you spreading infection then at that point is pretty low. Okay. Um, is it possible that, so we have this sort of bell curve. Um, is it possible that like, at what point are we going to be able to go back out and live our lives on a normal daily basis? Cause if one person hasn't, doesn't it kind of re-kick the whole thing off again? Well, what happens is, I mean, this is what a lot of the thought is that we actually create, well, we actually build up an immunity, an mm-hmm. immunity to the virus. Mm-hmm. So the people who got sick or could be asymptomatic, mild symptoms, moderate symptoms, um, once they get well, uh, the hope is that your immune system actually now will recognize the virus. And should you get it again, your immune system will be able to fight it. Um, that's the whole idea behind trying to develop a, a, vaccine, a vaccine for this particular virus, is that if, you, if we're tra- able to train our immune system to recognize it, then the degree of symptoms should be minimized. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a lot of unknowns because this happened during, you know, it happened in the end of December is when it first started happening in China, which is talking about the heart of, of flu season. And a lot of these viruses, these coronaviruses do really, really well um, in the cold. But a lot of them don't do all that great when the weather starts warming up. But we have no idea how this how this virus is going to react. Mm-hmm. So some people are like, oh, once the weather warms up, it won't be a thing anymore. But we don't know it. We don't know if this is going to be kind of a one-off that it happened, we get through it, and then it really isn't a thing anymore. Um, we don't know if it's going to be seasonal and it could be potentially the new flu mm. um, or if it's going to be a year-long threat. Mm. And then at that point, then you've got to just, like I said, kind of evaluate and just kind of see how things go. Mm-hmm. Um, but hopefully um, we'll build up some immunity and, uh, and prevent, prevent it from being, becoming this severe again. If somebody was to cough on a surface, how long does the virus remain um, infectionable, if you will, by somebody else touching it? it says the, the best estimate that I've seen is about three days. Okay. Um, let's see some of these questions you've already answered. Um, someone who wrote in is almost positive that they have it. What are some ways of knowing that you're getting better or worse? Because for this person, it kind of came in waves. They'd get better then they'd feel a little bit worse. Is there any way to, to know that or not? Like I said, I, if you know, <clears throat> a lot of times with these, with these diseases, they're there are ups and downs in terms of the getting better process. Um, but, you know, feeling crummy and just like lack of energy isn't a reason to go to the ER. What I would say is, is that you feel like, like you're having, when you start, if you start feeling like you're having shortness of breath, like you're, it's feeling like it's getting harder to breathe for you. Then I think that would be when I would start seeking treatment. Mm-hmm. That and being is the, the virus itself binds to receptors within the lung and it's that response after the binding that leads to the most severe disease and hence why coughing shortness why you get the cough and also why you can get very short of breath so as long as 
you know, the person is breathing okay and they just feel crummy, they say just wait it out. Mm-hmm. Um, if everyone were to stay home, this is a hypothetical, but if everyone were to stay home and businesses closed down, what's the estimated timeline in your mind for this thing to, to pass through? I mean, if you're talking about a perfect world, (laughs) a perfect, I mean, honestly, probably if that truly happened, it'd probably just be a matter of weeks. Yeah. But being that that's not happening uh, and we've got our, our party goers down in Cocoa beach or wherever the heck else down in Florida um, and everybody else in between uh, I'm estimating, this is just obviously my personal guess, but this is going to be, you know, because there's going to be a wave, right? And and some people are going to contract it earlier. Some people are going to get it later. Um, factoring in a couple of weeks each time for them to process the illness. I mean, I, I think the shortest we're going to be looking at is a month, right? And then, you know, probably to be safe, you're looking at another couple of weeks to maybe even a month after that. I mean, I've been telling my kids to prepare for probably no more school, you know, this year. Um, you know, get, get used to e-learning and <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a new, it's a new world and we're going to have to adapt. I mean, that's why I said, I would say most conservative estimate, probably a couple of months. Mm. And, and, and like I said, there's just so many unknowns about what'll happen once the weather warms up mm. and what is going to be, you know, <clears throat> are we instituting full measures to try to minimize spread? Um, and like I said, a lot of it just comes down to individuals. Like we've, we've got to kind of work all together. And I'll tell you this, I mean, like I said, you know, I was skeptical and I also was like, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. If I get it, whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, I fear, I fear for my mom, mm-hmm. my mom 65. Mm-hmm. I fear for my sister um, who has, um, ulcerative colitis, pretty severe, and she's on immunosuppressant drugs to keep her under control. So they're both at very high risk of getting severe disease from this. Mm-hmm. And you know, once you start personalizing it and you realize that this isn't a joke, it's a, you could lose your loved ones over this. Um, it's pretty scary. And it's mm-hmm. not that like the flu can't inflict these people as well. So I think there's also this thought that it's just a bad flu, but it seems that the response to this is even more severe. So then, than what you would normally get with the flu. So I would just say, kind of just take precautions and, uh, and we'll see how things go. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any, natural cures or preventions that you're aware of or that they're testing or that they think might be heading in the right direction to prevent this or? Honestly, man, just like right. most, like most diseases, like I said, good hygiene and yeah. keep away from people that are sick, potentially sick, um, et cetera. So, and keep yourself away even if you feel well um, because of the fact that you could be an asymptomatic spreader. You mm-hmm. know, just, got to just take care of yourself the best you can. Um, like I said, smokers that are at higher risk. So maybe quit smoking. Um, <laughs> it's just like anything. It's just people that have chronic illnesses, you know? So, you know, the healthier you are, the better shot you have at fighting this virus. 
Um, I've got a handful more of just some practical questions and then we can kind of wrap it up. Um, if you're at home, if, if you believe that you've contracted it and you're cooking something, um, you know, or just drinking out of the same glass as like your kids would, is that, uh, is that something you'd advise against? I mean, I, I'm just I'm hearing the answer as I'm saying it to you. Um, but are, are there, are there any things, anything that we can do to help, you know, eliminate or minimize the impact even just in within our own homes? I mean, the likelihood, I guess, is that it's probably going to be contracted by anybody in the home, but. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, don't share cups. <laughs> you know, don't share cups. Um, if you're sick, then listen, I mean, you've got to take care of your kids, you know? Um, but what I would say is just continue to minimize the amount of exposure that you could let that you give to your kids. Like, you know, if your normal thing is, Hey, I love kissing my kids. Don't kiss your kids. Mm. You know, don't share, don't share from the same glass, you know, make sure that you teach them how to wash their hands, cough into their cough into their elbow um, to minimize the spread. Mm. You know, even doing all of this stuff, um, you may, you may all still get it. It's very likely that you will. Mm -hmm. um, but I still think t teaching these habits early on are, can in the long term be really, really beneficial. Yep. Um, a lot of restaurants are staying open for just takeout or drive through. Um, do you see an increased risk in ordering food in that manner? Uh, if, if we're self quarantined and we're in our cars, we're not really interacting with people. We pick up something at a drive through or at a, at a, you know, is there, from the in the restaurant industry like how how probable is it that one person can create you know a contagious spread because of the handling of the food or things of that nature or is it relatively safe do we know um i don't think that you can really determine what those exact numbers are i think again just just like anything you've got to put trust in the people that are making your food that hopefully they're 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 practicing proper hygiene um, and you know, if somebody hands you a bag, then, you know, hand on the bag, don't touch your face, you know, don't do anything. But when you get home, you know, take out, you know, you know, wash your hands, throw away the bag, um, sanitize, you know, just make sure you, again, like you're taking precautions, things could get spread through just the handling of like the bags itself. Um, but generally speaking, I think you're probably still okay. I don't think that the risk of contracting COVID from mishandled food would be that great. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you the same thing about Amazon packages. I know a lot of people are sitting at home doing ordering online and having things delivered. So same kind of common sense measures to, yeah. Um, very good. Manoj, this has been super, super helpful. Is there anything else that you would like uh, to share? Is there information that people, what's the question that's not being asked that we need to know? Um, or is there just, is it just a measure of common sense at this point and reducing social interaction? What, what we know is basically just, you know, continue to use that common sense. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's hard. We're, we're, we're social creatures. Yeah. 
you know? And the idea of telling us, hey, hey, I can't, I'm supposed to minimize my interactions with others, stay at home. Um, I mean, just these kinds of things are really difficult for us to do. It's wild. It really is. And, and I get it. Believe me, I get it. I am a social creature. Yes, you are. And, I follow your Instagram. <laughs> you know, and there's times where I'm almost kind of, I feel fortunate. It's kind of messed up, but I feel fortunate that I work in a hospital with a lot of great people because even though I come home and I'm essentially just staying at home, I get to go to work and work with like incredible number of people who I still get to socially interact with because we all have a common goal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even throughout all of this, I mean, I'm, you know, I feel kind of lucky. Other people might be like, Hey dude, you, you go to the hospital, you deal with these patients to get your, to get your social fix. And I'm happy to just stay at home, <laughs> you know, but Hey, I mean, I am getting my social fix. So it's, I'm not, I don't feel as crazy as I feel like some people are, are feeling right now. Just, being at home, especially uh, from my friends who have little kids, yeah. who they're saying it is the most challenging thing because their kids are literally losing their minds. <laughs> yeah, uh, that might be the biggest challenge, uh, that and the economic impact that we're probably going to see from this. But um, really, yeah. one last question, what can we do to help you and the other people on the front lines of this? Is there anything that we can do to make this um, a little bit more bearable? Um, I'd say a few things. One, like I said, if you have, if you have mild symptoms, don't, don't go to the ER. Don't overwhelm the hospital system. Stay at home. Take care of yourself. Minimize your interactions. Good hygiene. Second thing I would say is to stop hoarding and buying all tons of toilet paper or medicines or whatever else you're doing, because there's a lot of people who actually need these things and are not able to get it. Mm. And we're not doing the community um, a service by doing so. I'll be honest, like, I haven't bought any food. I have a standard amount of toilet paper. <laughs> um, and I think just practicing common sense and not letting panic be the thing that dictates your actions um, would help people a lot. Mm. Um, if you have masks, again, those masks generally don't help unless you're sick. Um, and what it's doing is that it's actually preventing, it's creating shortages for the healthcare professionals that actually need to use them. Um, especially your N95 respirator masks that people are buying. Um, there's been an incredible movement. Like there's been a lot of manufacturers. I don't know if you saw this, but Dior stopped making perfume and now they're just making hand sanitizer and they're yeah, giving sure. it for free. And a lot of other companies, distilleries are doing that. Beer distilleries are doing that as well, where they're actually utilizing the alcohol that they produce to make hand sanitizer. Um, so that's what I would say is just, you know, the resources that the medical professionals need, please, please, please stop buying them. Let, let us have them. Mm. Um, 
and just do right to your community. You know, like, you know, I, there's everyone is scared for themselves, but this isn't about yourself. This is about everybody else. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful advice, man. Um, it's times like these that I'm always so impressed with the human spirit. And, um, you know, we saw this during 9 11. Everybody's talking about how, how there was so much evil, but at the same time, there was so much, um, there was people running into the buildings and um, to save. And it, we saw the best of humanity. And I like to look for those in moments like this. And you being one of those people on the front lines, uh, <clears throat> it's just my heartfelt love to you and the rest of the, the first responders in this crisis um, goes out to you guys. And uh, your advice is very well uh, stated. And um, maybe we can do a follow-up call if, if you're not too, you know, inundated, but um, let's hope that that's not the case. And uh, my love to you and, and your family, as well as uh, your colleagues. Same to you, Peter, and your family as well. Very good. Thanks, Manoj. Thanks, buddy.